Well, good morning, church. How are you? I think I reached the peak of my illustrious high school wrestling career. Pause the tape there. Isn't that a ridiculous sounding introduction to a message? Sounds like a guy well into his 50s with his glory years behind him and he's trying to live the very best of his days and it sounds desperate, doesn't it? It's the story I'm working with this morning, so get over it. Warm up to me real quickly. It's the one we're going with. Yeah, I think I reached the peak of my, um, my high school wrestling career in, in 12th grade. I had just transferred from another high school. That high school shut down, and they were spreading the students all across uh, Sarnia. Got to this new school, and I was interested in kind of making inroads with the student population, trying to create a name for myself. And uh, on this particular day, our school was hosting a pretty important wrestling tournament. I thought to myself, here's my chance to make a splash. They had invited uh, some of the best teams from all across Ontario, including Bishop Ryan from uh, the city of Hamilton that had just won OFSA the year before. And so after I weighed in, I went over to the charts on the wall to see who it was I'd be wrestling. And I noticed fairly early into the tournament, looking at uh, kind of the stack there, I was going to be fighting somebody from... Uh, from Bishop Ryan, a little nervous about that, and while I'd love to drag out the drama and build the intensity of the match, high school wrestling amounts to two three-minute halves. They blow the whistle, there's a little bit of a scrap, and then it's over with. If you blink, you miss the thing. So I really can't do that. I'm just going to cut to the punchline. I won the match. I, 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 beat this, I beat this guy who was ranked, uh, he won off the year before, and the current year we're in, he was ranked second in the province. This is a match I shouldn't have won, but I ended up winning. I not only won that match, but I won the tournament. I not only won the tournament, but I ended up being athlete of the tournament overall for all the weight classes. So this was a great day. When I was done fighting, uh, the rest of my teammates, some who transferred from the other school and knew me fairly well, and some of the wrestlers from, from this new school came over, and they kind of mauled me. It was almost like watching one of those TV movies where they put the guy in the middle on the blanket, and they throw him up the air, hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. Other than there was no blanket, and my feet were firmly on the ground, but it was exciting as they mauled me. And then my coach came over, and he put his two hands on my shoulders. He looked me in the eye, and he said, I am so proud of how hard you've been working and how well that you did today. And then this guy by the name of Nick Cipriano, who ends up later on down the line being the head of the athletic department at McMaster University and went on to be the coach of the Canadian wrestling team, he came over and said, Shh, I want to talk to you for a second. He said, what are your plans after high school? Now I'm finding myself in a recruiting conversation, but as good and as enjoyable as that was, the thing that lit me up the most was the response of the crowd that had gathered in the room. Large grandstands, a couple hundred people, lots of my friends there who knew I wrestled well and wanted to see me, kind of the debut in this new school, and some other people who had heard I might be okay at this, and they showed up as well. And when they lifted my hand as the victor at the end of that match, there was this eruption of joy, because of course I won not just for myself, but I won for the entire school. And there was lots of cheering and shouting. That was a moment of high and jubilation for me. For the rest of the day, actually for the next couple days, the rest of the week at school, I walked around the hallway like this. People were walking by, they were high-fiving me. A few people without announcing ahead of time were kind of bumping chests with me. I wish you'd let me know you're gonna do that because I just spilled my drink. People were stopping me and putting their arms around me and saying, man, I didn't know 
that you could do that. What you did the other day, Stoner, was awesome. You're the man. So for the rest of the week, I held my head high. Why? Because I was a winner. And they could not get enough of it. They couldn't get enough of me in that moment. And let me tell you, I enjoyed my moment in the spotlight. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 28 down to 40, go like this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one else has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had been told or had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the coat and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he said, If they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. I can't be completely sure about how Jesus felt on the inside when he entered the city of Jerusalem that day. I mean, I've heard the story of Palm Sunday since I was a kid, and I think for a little while early on, I imagined in my mind that Jesus must have been elated inebriated with joy, feeling very much the same way I did at the end of my wrestling match. But as time has gone by, I've begun to wonder if I was wrong in that imagination. In fact, I've come to the point where I deeply believe that I was wrong. The one thing I can be certain about when it comes to Jesus is that he had been delivering on a promise that he made some time before that. He'd been delivering on this promise for some time now. A promise that he made several years ago ago, or before when he entered the city of Nazareth and entered the synagogue there and began to describe the contours of the sort of ministry that he was about to embark on, about the ministry he was about to perform. And he began his announcement with the words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I think you know how the rest goes. For the last three, three and a half years, Jesus has been faithfully delivering on His promise. He's been restoring sight to the blind. He's been casting out demons, setting those in bondage or the captives free. And he has been announcing the good news, the favor of God on his people, particularly on the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden. Now, there was a procession that day. But what made the procession so special was the fact that people just could not get enough of Jesus. They loved Jesus. They were gobbling up. They just couldn't get enough of him. So much so that this procession was anything but a solemn occasion. It was filled with joy. There was kind of an electricity in the air, a party-like spirit 
So much so that it was almost on the edge of pandemonium. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means God saves or God is salvation or please save us. They knew that Jesus was a rescuer and they wanted him to come and to rescue them from the plight that they found themselves in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You, you go to a sporting event now, and if you look up in the stands at high points of the game, you'll often see people with their foam hand with a finger on it, waving it around like this, or the foam noodle. And nod with me. You've seen that before, the foam noodle? They're shaking back and forth. People are excited. Well, on this particular day, the crowds had palm branches waving them back and forth, a sign of honor to royalty as he comes to enter the city. And they laid down their cloaks, their, their outer garments before him to create a path for him as he'd entered into the city. And the reception that he was given that day was typical of the kind of reception that was given to conquerors, to kings and generals when they entered the city after conquering in battle and winning the victory. In times of war, a general would come in on horseback, but on this particular day, Jesus entered the city on the back of a donkey, just like Solomon had centuries before. It was a sign, it was a symbol of peace, and it spoke about the sort of king that Jesus had come to be, and the kind of kingdom that he had come to inaugurate. And at this point, Jesus is almost enjoying celebrity status. It's like he's on the red carpet at the Oscars, or he's just hoisted the Stanley Cup and he's taking one more skate around the rink after they've won the game. Or he's taking center stage at halftime of the Super Bowl to perform. And the crowds have erupted into loud cheers and shoutings. They absolutely love him. Too bad Jesus couldn't somehow or another have stayed in that space, right? Too bad somehow or another they couldn't have stretched out that minute of glory and allowed Jesus to bask in the praise, the praise that he deserved as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Am I not right? But things go south, and they go south rather quickly. It's not usually my habit to assign a title to any message I share. I don't normally put titles on, on sermons, but if I was to put one on this day, it would go something like this. How Not to Be Crucified. It's the title of the message this morning. How Not to Be Crucified, or Three Simple Steps to Avoid Crucifixion. And the first one goes like this. If you don't want to be crucified, then make sure your heart is never broken over the darkness of this world. Make sure that your heart is never crushed as you think about the human rebellion against God. Make sure you never get to that point where you grieve all the implications of human sin and what is done to the world. When you get to that place, you are raising the likelihood that you yourself will be crucified someday. Luke's gospel, chapter 19, picking up at verse 41, where I just left off, goes like this. We're not even in the city yet. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you, encircle you, and hem you in on every side. 
They will dash you to the ground. You will find children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He wept over the city. You know, there's two main words that get used in the New Testament for crying or for tears or for weeping. One is the idea of silent crying. You know, guys, when you're watching a movie with your wife and you're a little choked up and you don't want her to notice and your eyes start to well up and the, the tears pool at the bottom and you're just hoping, I hope one doesn't come down, I hope one doesn't come down, and one starts to trickle down your cheek. A few of you are nodding, you've been there before. Embarrassing, isn't it? That's not the type of crying that we're talking about in this passage. When Jesus breaks down and weeps, he sobs, sobs uncontrollably over the city. You see, Jesus in this narrative is moving from the east towards the west, towards the city, and as he descends the Mount of Olives and crosses the Kidron Valley, there in front of him, he's given the perfect view of the city of Jerusalem, basking in all its glory. And as he looks down at the city, he breaks down and cries because he knows that it's in trouble. Despite his popular appeal at the moment, he understands the fickleness of the crowd. He knows they have the capacity to turn. And he knows that the religious and the civil authorities within the city have their hearts set against him and that eventually they will reject him and use all their powers to turn the mob back against them. He is broken in that situation because he knows that they are failing to fathom his true identity and what he had come to do to establish a peace that they just couldn't understand. And what breaks his heart the most is he knows the consequences of their rejecting him and rejecting God. Within four decades, by 70 AD, the Romans come and they circle the city and they crush the city of Jerusalem. They topple the walls and eventually they set the temple aflame, never to be restored to its previous glory again. And it wasn't something that was done quickly. When the Romans showed up, they said, we're not going to march in there and flex our muscle. You know what we'll do? We'll starve them out. And so they put a siege on the city. And for quite some time, they starved the people on the inside. They were suffering uh, a, a famine because they had no access to food. And historians tell us that on the inside, some women were so desperate they killed their husbands and slaughtered them for food. So bad was their plight, story, stories are told that women slaughtered their own children in order to stay alive, in order to keep going. This was a dark, dark moment in the life of the nation of Israel. And that's what breaks Jesus' heart the most, the consequences that they're going to suffer in light of rejecting God. Jesus is not one of these people who's easily offended. He's not a touchy guy. He doesn't get all sucky when people personally reject him. That's not what the tears are about in this case. We know that from chapter 23, verse 28, just a few chapters later, when Jesus is being led away to, cru to be crucified. And there's some women that are following him, and they begin to weep. And he turns, he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. When Jesus cries, it is almost always about the plight of others and what the darkness and evil of this world has done to them, the way that it has crushed them. And here in the story, we find Jesus again being filled, his heart being filled with sorrow. 
I entered the Lenten season this year, as I've done a couple times along the way over my life, by attending an Ash Wednesday service. And for the most part, or at least for the first part, I was enjoying the service as I was sitting there listening to, participating in the readings, singing the songs. And then it came the point of the service where we had to get up and walk forward and stand in line and wait for the ashes to be placed on our foreheads in the shape of a cross. And I got to that point, and up to this point, I'm enjoying myself, praising the Lord, and I'm, I'm standing there, and there's two choices that the minister often has when it comes to pronouncing words, or at least two of the traditional uh, pronouncements go like something like this. One thing he could say is, repent and believe the gospel. And that's often said in these types of services. Or the other thing that can be said, which is what the minister chose to say on this particular occasion when he was putting the ashes on on my forehead. Remember, you are from dust, and to dust you will return. Enjoying myself up to that point, those words sunk deep into me. It was a Holy Spirit thing. It kind of bypassed my mind and grabbed the inner part of my being. That pronouncement is the judgment that God pronounced over Adam and Eve back in the garden when they had turned their backs on God and rebelled. And so he announced the consequences of their rebellion. It's a reminder that the decay and the destruction and the death that we encounter in this world, it's our fault. Maybe not us personally when it comes to a certain incident, but collectively, our rebellion against God has ushered death into this creation. We're the ones to blame. And so for the, next, for the rest of that day, for the next couple days, everywhere I went and I saw signs of death and decay and destructions, I thought to myself, man, look what we've done. When I pulled up to street corners and there'd be a panhandler standing on the side with a sign looking for a little bit of a handout, again, I'd feel crushed. We've done that. Or driving along the street and see somebody struggling with an illness, maybe in a wheelchair, oxygen tank, maybe trying to get by on crutches. Again, illness wasn't here before our rebellion. So I watched or listened to the news on TV or online and would hear about domestic violence taking somebody's life or hear about corruption overseas in some African country. It reminded me again, we have taken this beautiful, wonderful creation and we have soiled it and ruined it. We are the ones that have destroyed it. Don't want to be crucified? Then don't ever move towards lamenting. Don't ever allow yourself to get to that point where you look at the world and say, this is not the world that God intended. Don't ever allow your hearts to open up and to begin to grieve over what it is that we've done. And by all means, don't let your heart be filled with sorrow when you think about the consequences of human rebellion in this world, the way that people have been shattered by the implications of our sin and our evil. Don't think about that. Don't let your heart feel pain as it wanders in that direction. Do everything you can to close it over, to shut it off, to let it go cold and callous. Do everything you can to numb your heart when you feel yourself pulled in that direction. Numb it with entertainment, with shopping, with screen time, with endless entertainment and travel and leisure. Party until your head pops off. But whatever you do, 
don't allow yourself to go to that space because as sorrow makes its way into your heart, don't be surprised if it moves you to act. Which brings me to my second point. If you don't want to be crucified, don't act. Don't intervene. Don't tackle injustice. Don't fight for those who are oppressed. Don't do it. That's what Jesus did. Got him into trouble. Again, Luke's Gospel, chapter, chapter 19, where I'm, I'm going to pick up again where I left off. This is verse 45 down to 48. When Jesus, and this is the very first thing that happens after he comes into the city. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill them, or kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. There were two types of commerce that were going on in the temple at the time, and both of them to a certain degree made sense. People would travel from far distances, and it didn't make sense for them to carry their sacrificial animals with them. So one of the things that was allowed to happen was the selling of animals for sacrifice at the temple. No big deal. The problem was you had to use a certain type of currency. And so there were money changers, currency exchangers at the temple as well, making sure that you got temple coins in order to buy your sacrifice. Again, no problem. You can search the law. There's nothing wrong with those two things happening in the court. Here's the problem. They had a monopoly on the business. There was basically nowhere else where you could get your money or it wasn't easy to get your animal someplace else to drag it to the temple. And because they had a monopoly, they took advantage of people. They charged huge rates. And basically what they did was they gouged people to make matters worse. You know where this took place? Not just in any precinct or court of the temple, but it took place in the court of the Gentiles. The temple authorities, who are most surely all Jewish, didn't want this stuff taking place in the Jewish parts of the temple, so they made sure it took place in the Gentile courts, in the place where non-Jews, where only Gentiles could come and worship God. They're already having a tough enough time getting in. They're kept a little ways out, and now the Jews are making it more difficult for them to do that. This is religious racism that's going on. And Jesus is not prepared to sit idly by. Instead, he acts. He takes matters into his own hands. We read in the Gospels that he walks into the temple, those tables where the money changing was take place, bam! Knock that one over. The stools or the benches where they were selling doves, he gets over there, he tosses them over as well. Interesting, doves, of all the animals, that was the only one that the poor could be able to afford. And it's just that the gospel writers here are saying to us, guess who's being most oppressed by these practices? Those who have nothing to begin with, making it impossible for them to come and to worship the Lord as well. The gospel of Mark says that Jesus shows up in the precinct there, and he basically enforces an embargo, a blockade. He stands in the middle of the court, and he won't let these merchants pass with their merchandise. He's not going to let it happen. The Gospel of John says that Jesus comes in, not, so, not only turns the table over, but he takes the container that, that carried their profits, the coins, and he pours it out on the ground. He scatters their profit across the temple floor. And John goes on from there to say that he fashions a whip using cords, and he chases them out of that court because he doesn't want to see this happen. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a tough time juxtaposing 
Jesus coming in gently on a donkey. We even sing a song about that. And him taking a whip and chasing these so-and-sos out of the temple court. But that's what he does. And in Mark's gospel, he, we have him shouting out and pronouncing, My house will be a house of prayer for all people. Not just Jews, but for non-Jews as well. For Gentiles, enough of the religious racism. And then he adds, but you guys have turned this place, this house, into a den of robbers. And what is a den of robbers? It's a safe house for crooks so they can practice their thievery. And here Jesus is saying, enough, I'm done with it. Get out of here. We're going to restore this place to the way that it should be. Is it just me or is there an exponential proliferation of money marts and payday loan stores in our city? I can see it on some of your faces. Mike, it's you. You moved to Hamilton. (laughs) And while that might be true to a certain degree, I see them in Burlington. I see them in Oakville. I see them all across the GTA. You know what the stores are that I'm talking about. These are the stores where those who are already in a tough place, they don't have any money of their own, find themselves in an extremely tight spot, and they need just a little bit of cash. And so they just go to these stores, and they borrow money, and they're able to get money, but at interest rates that are, you just can't keep up with them. The law allows a two-week, $100 loan to be offered out And um, those stores are able to charge a $21 premium on $100. Now, that renews every two weeks. On a percentage basis, guess what that adds up to at the end of the year? Any mathematicians here? It's a 546% interest rate compounded over the course of the year. In the province of B.C., And Alberta and Saskatchewan, the rate ends up being 600%. I don't care who you are. Any of us in this room get caught behind a little bit, and we go one of those places, and we start to sink down in that hole, you're going to keep sinking. You're going to keep sinking. There's no way out. You just can't keep up with it. So why do they seem to multiply and pop up on every corner? Why doesn't somebody put them out of business? Why doesn't somebody stop them and shut them down? Well, I have a theory It's backed up with a little bit of evidence. I don't think they're going anywhere quickly. I don't think they're going to shut down overnight. I don't think they're going to shut down all by themselves because there are too many prominent, powerful people who stand to benefit from the prophets. And these are people who are so powerful, they have the means to erase any trace or evidence of connection to these stores. And when it comes to oppression and injustice, Isn't that always the way it is? The oppressed moving quickly to protect themselves? Try lifting your finger against some form of injustice or oppression and watch how quickly the oppressors move to safeguard their interests. If you don't want to be crucified, make sure you don't act. Go home. Turn a blind eye. Pretend the world we live in is fair and just and equitable for everybody, that it's equal across the board. Just go ahead and do that. That's the only way to safeguard 
and to keep yourself protected, to keep yourself from being crucified. You see, what happens when you begin to act, after a while you realize that sometimes our actions are futile and you get frustrated and eventually you speak out. You call the evildoers out and that will surely get you in trouble. Which brings me to my last point, my third point. If you don't want to be crucified, then don't name the perpetrators. Don't call out the architects of injustice. Don't put your finger in the chest of the oppressors because they don't like it and they bite back. If you turn over a page and you go to chapter 20 in this gospel, there Jesus kind of puts his finger in the chest of the perpetrators. And he does so by telling a story. It's a story about a man who owns this beautiful vineyard and he wants to go away on a long trip and he's going to be away for a while. So what he does is he leases his property out to some farmers who end up being the tenants in this story. Well, while the man's gone, all of a sudden he gets a hankering, he gets a little bit of a desire for the fruit that his crops produce. And so he sends one of his servants back to get some of the produce to bring back to him that he might enjoy it. Only it doesn't work out well because the farmers, the tenants in this case that are leasing the land, they beat the servant up and they throw him out. He sends another servant. They beat that one up, throw him out. Sends another servant, beat him up, throw him out or throw him to the wayside as well. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I think this man gets it. So finally he says, ah, I know what I'm going to do. I won't send a servant anymore. I'll send my son. I'll send my one and only son. Surely they'll respect him. And they'll listen to him. Only when the son starts walking towards them, they conspire with each other. Let's kill this man's one and only son because then his inheritance will be ours. And they go ahead with it. But the landowner, when he returns and discovers what's happened, he has the tenants killed and he takes the property and he hands it over to others. And they never get what they were looking for. Verse 19 of the story. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. The tenets are the religious and the civil authorities of Jewish society. And the vineyard in this story is basically the nation of Israel that they had not taken care of well. And their people and the well-being of the people. And so Jesus speaks out against them using the power of a story. Notice that in the temple, when he cleansed the temple court, Jesus really deals with the frontline evildoers, those who get their hands Dirty. Those that we can often easily see are guilty. He deals with the merchants. But through this story, what he really does is he calls out the lawyers and he calls out the priests as the two true culprits who wield the power behind the scenes. He goes after them. See, behind the scenes, there had been this development of an unholy alliance between the Roman government and those that were in charge of the temple and the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling council in the land. And I think what Jesus here is going after the high priest, the priestly class. And he's putting his finger in their chest and he's saying, you're the ones. It's you who've abused and have misused your responsibility and your authority and your power for your own advantage. And in the process, you have abdicated responsibility. You are the ones to blame. 
And let me tell you, when you put it to those who are ultimately responsible and have the power behind the scenes, it's your sure death every single time. Back in 2012, Maurice McCabe and John Wilson were respected police officers working in Ireland. When they found evidence that traffic offenses were being wiped out and interfered with, they did what their job demanded of them. They reported it. According to McCabe and Wilson, traffic penalty points were being waived for dubious reasons. They believed this was happening in almost every town and village of Ireland. Among those thought to have benefited were rugby stars, a judge, a national journalist, as well as some police officers. At the time a growing financial, of a growing financial crisis, the reportedly canceled payments were costing taxpayers an estimated 1.5 million euros a year. Reckless drivers were also allegedly going unpunished. As many as seven road fatalities might have been avoided if rules against dangerous driving had been properly enforced. Given all this, you might imagine the two men would be praised for their courage in speaking out, right? You'd be wrong. First, their complaint was ignored or, dis or dismissed, not only by their immediate supervisors, but by a police commissioner, the minister for justice, and ultimately, the prime minister. Then they were forced to watch on as their careers were destroyed. Both men were denied further access to police database, effectively making their jobs impossible. Police officers visited their homes unannounced or called their mobile phones while they were on leave. They were stopped and searched without warrant. It destroyed me, my family, and my career, McCabe said later. Ultimately, Wilson resigned from his position. McCabe remained but says he was threatened with disciplinary, disciplinary action if he testified about his complaint. As the isolation increased, they called the Irish Whistleblower Hotline. Taking over 200 calls a year, this outfit offers advice to, and help to victims and witnesses of corruption. The story goes on to say that ultimately they were vindicated and the Irish government issued an apology and those that were responsible for the corruption were brought to justice. If you don't want to be crucified, and hopefully by now you know I'm speaking mostly metaphorically, don't let your heart up and grieve and lament for the brokenness of this world. And if you do, and it urges you, it motivates you to move to action, my goodness, don't intervene. Don't act. Don't try to do something about the situation. And if you do that, and your plans, your actions are frustrated, and you feel compelled to speak out and denounce those who are ultimately responsible for the injustices and the corruption in this world, my goodness. If you don't want to be crucified, don't do that. Jesus did. Look what happened. I think mostly unintentionally, when we invite people to faith to accept Jesus, somehow, subtly, again, I think unintentionally, we create the expectation that when you sign on with Jesus, life becomes rosy. Things go along smoothly. Never a hiccup. And for those of us who've already been following Jesus, 
we somehow or another embrace the belief that what God wants most for us is to be healthy and wealthy and happy, to live a life that's secure and comfortable and familiar and predictable and safe. And then we raise children with the same expectations. We wonder why they get halfway through life and become disillusioned when life doesn't work out the way that parents say it's going to. And many of them walk away from their faith completely because it's, they weren't, it's, not as, it's not as they were told it was supposed to be. I had never noticed this before until looking at this passage this time. And I wrap up with this. Luke, in his telling of the story of Palm Sunday, doesn't even touch the triumphal entry. When you get home, go back and look at the passage. Doesn't talk about Jesus coming into the city. He infers it. He alludes to it. It's kind of assumed in the story, but he doesn't describe it directly. He talks about Jesus approaching the city. He skips that part, and that gets on with the story of the Passion Week. I think theologically, Luke is up to something here. I think what he's trying to do is put us in the heart and the mind of Jesus. Coming to Jerusalem had nothing to do with the applause and the adulation and the victory party that they were showing, throwing for him. That's not what it was about for Jesus, that's not what the story is about at all. Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. The entire time his plan was to come and rescue both oppressor and oppressed by laying down and surrendering his life. That was the plan all along. And the one who did that turns to those of us who say we're followers. And he bids us to come and do the same. problem is, I don't think, honestly, I don't think most of us are prepared to go. So can you help us, Father? Please. We run to comfort and happiness and victory When true awareness of the pain of the world that we live in wants to creep in, we numb our hearts. We create diversions and preoccupations so we never have to stare reality in the face. We look at your son and we love so many parts of his life and we want to emulate so much of it and then there's areas of his life that scare us. We know that you have given us your spirit that we might imitate him in everything, in every way, in every glance and in every step and in every gesture. God, I guess in our heads, many of us want to go that way. We want to follow after him and do that needs, what needs to be done, but we are so afraid of crucifixion. We're so afraid of dying to self, of taking up our crosses and following after him. God, we don't want to be crushed in living life for you. Change our hearts. Set your spirit free on us even this morning to do his transformative work in our lives. That we might be more useful in the economy of your kingdom, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.